Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Before we get started with this week's episode with Heather Hying, I'd like to tell you about my new mobile iOS game, Network Wars. It's a deceptively simple but profoundly deep turn-based strategy game where your goal is to defeat four AI armies and take over the network. It's trivial to learn and simple to play. A typical game lasts just five minutes. You'll find that despite its amazingly simple mechanics, Network Wars takes real strategic depth to master. Every game is different with a new set of challenges and opportunities. I designed Network Wars to exercise and develop our human skill of heuristic induction. What is heuristic induction? It's the ability to extract and intelligently apply useful rules of thumb from noisy and incomplete data. I incorporated into the design of Network Wars ideas from cognitive science and artificial general intelligence, the sort we often talk about here on the Jim Rutt Show. Those who've played it report great satisfaction from gradually improving their play as they learn to see patterns and develop a collection of winning tactics and strategies. And after achieving a decent level of mastery, users report having a quick entry into a flow state. We know flow states are good for our mental health, though a few people did report that the game can be a bit addicting, so be careful. One of the things that pisses me off about many mobile games today is they are often free, quote-unquote, but are full of ads, time limits, in-game purchases, and other highly annoying come-ons. Network Wars has no ads, no in-game promotions, and no time limits. Just unlimited fun and good exercise for your mind for 99 cents in U.S. dollars or the equivalent in your local currency. Check out Network Wars, two words, at the Apple App Store or at NetworkWars.com. An Android version will be coming soon. And if you enjoy Network Wars, please give us a five-star rating on the App Store or even better, a review. Those things really help. Thanks. Today's guest is Heather Hying. Heather is an evolutionary biologist who applies the toolkit of evolutionary theory to problems large and small. She is a professor in exile and a podcaster with her husband, Brett Weinstein, on the very good Dark Horse podcast. And she's an author of essays and now a book. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you for having me, Jim. Ah, it's great to do this conversation. We've known each other a little bit for a, a long while. It's a good chance to get into it a little bit and Find out more about what you're thinking. Wonderful. Yeah, Heather, along with Brett, have just published a most interesting and relevant book. It's called A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. It'll be the main focus of our conversation today, though as regular listeners know, we're likely to wander off on various side excursions. Sometimes those are the best parts. To keep the conversation streamlined, when questioning Heather about contents in the book, I'll often say, you say, or something similar. Listeners should assume I'm using the plural form of you to include her co-author, so I don't have to say y'all or something annoying like that. So let's start out with the seemingly oxymoronic title, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. What are you pointing to with that title? 
Great question. Well, we could have named it a post-industrialist's guide to the 21st century, or an agriculturalist's guide, or a primate's guide, or a mammal's guide, or a fish's guide, right? So all of these point to different moments in our evolutionary history. And so we, we invoke the term of art in evolution, environment of evolutionary adaptedness. And the hunter-gatherer of many of our sort of romantic visions of what humans used to look like, of the African savanna in the Paleolithic, that is the part of human history that we are referring to in the title, that hunter-gatherer from, call it 40,000 years ago, perhaps, on the African savanna. That was indeed part of our history, but a more accurate way to imagine what we are and to know what our history was and to understand our evolution well enough to move forward with care and with progress is to recognize that we don't have an environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. We have many environments of evolutionary adaptedness. So those hunter-gatherers of the African savanna and the Paleolithic, to which the title refers, were one thing that humans were, and we are adapted to that. We were also adapted to agriculture, because most of us have been agriculturalists for 10 to 12,000 years. We're also at this point adapted to a post-industrial lifestyle, albeit less well so, because it's so recent. And again, going back further in time, we are also primates, we are also mammals, we are also fish. All of these things are part of our history, and we are adapted to varying degrees to all of them. And so, yeah, as you say, you could have chosen a lot of different focuses, but that, was, that is an interesting one. So into the book itself, the book starts off with a bit of a bang with a story about you and Brett at the side of a river. Why don't you tell us that story? Yeah. Uh, so we, many years ago, this would have been the first summer that we were doing field work in the Neotropics. We were in Costa Rica, staying at a little tiny field station in Sarapiqui. And every morning I was doing field work in the forest and Brett was too. I think I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure that he had yet focused on the bats, um, in which case he would have been doing field work at some different times of day. But by the afternoon, it would get hot and we would walk down away from the field station, across the highway, over a large bridge, over the Rio Serpiqui and down to the river to swim as did the few other grad students that we were staying at this field station with, as did the local people. This day we were alone, it was just the two of us, and we were walking over the bridge about to head down to the river when a local man, whom we did not know, approached us. At that point, both of our Spanish was quite poor and he had no English, and he started telling us in Spanish with increasing urgency, hey, it rained today. And he would point up towards the mountains, it rained today in the mountains. And we were hot. We wanted to swim. We didn't know what this, why this was relevant to us. And so, but you know, we were, we were decent, kind people. So we engaged him. And at some point, as he just repeated, it rained today in the mountains. Today it rained in the mountains. We excused ourselves and began to walk away across the bridge and down to the river. And he said effectively, no, it rained today in the mountains. Look. And he pointed down at the river. And it was rising as we watched. And in fact, it was rising so fast that it, it literally stopped us in our tracks. But had he not been there to stop us in our tracks first, we would have been down at the river by the time it rose so fast that it effectively was a flash flood. And the lesson there was, one of the lessons was, when it rains in the mountains, that water's got to come somewhere. It's got to go somewhere and it's going to come downstream. And in this landscape of which you two, you two gringos are very unfamiliar, <laughs> you don't realize how fast that will happen. You know, you, may, you well may be familiar with the landscape in which you grew up, but this one you don't know. 
And so the reason that we start off the introduction with this story is we we were, this was literally our first field work in grad school. We were training to be scientists. We were learning how to ask questions of the world, how to make observations, how to recognize patterns, how to figure out if our, if our hypotheses were accurate. And we'd come to this place maybe a month and a half earlier, and we kind of already thought we knew it. And of course we didn't. So this, this modern ability to move yourself across space with rapidity and, and land in someone else's home effectively and imagine that you know it already is just that. It's a modern phenomenon. And absent that kind stranger, we might well have died. I mean, in fact, it seems quite likely that one or both of us would have been swept away by the not just the flash flood, but the massive number of you know, trees and other things that were washing downstream incredibly fast within within seconds of the water beginning to rise. So the the point is this hyper novel world that we live in that allows for things such as, for instance, plane travel, gives us a sense of power and of knowledge of places that long time in a place that affords wisdom, it's just no replacement for that. So the local man who was probably, you know, probably a local farmer, probably had very little formal education, knew far more about that landscape than we already, you know, hyper-educated and, you know, ever, you know, working towards greater education had no way of knowing. We, we, we could not know what he taught us in that moment on that day and that knowledge that he had was life-saving. Very good. Well, you keyed me up to my next question. A term you use throughout the book is hyper-novel. Tell us about what you mean when you say that. We mean by that the idea that, well, let me, let me take a step back and say evolutionary biologists and ecologists talk about niche. Right, we every organism has some niche to which it is adapted, that set of environmental conditions and constraints in which it does its its best work, and outside of which it is more likely to fail. And so we ask in the book, what is the human niche? And the answer that we propose and that we find good evidence for is that the human niche is niche switching. That there are many generalists out there, but that of all of the species on the planet, we are the most generalist. We do the best job of being able to switch, for instance, from being, you know, fishermen at the coast to fishermen upriver to hunters of terrestrial game inland. And that's just to borrow from, you know, one of the early, early stories in the book about the first Americans, the Beringians who came over from Asia. But in modern times, of course, we have plenty of evidence of people niche switching. And it's the, it's the same thing. It's the same capacity that allows us to do that. So that is all true. We are best at that of anyone on the planet. We're better at it even than all of the other remarkably, you know, social, long-lived, generational overlap, long childhood animals like elephants and dolphins and wolves and parrots and other primates. But even we, have created so much change at such a rapid rate at this point that we are outstripping our ability to niche switch. And so the hyper-novel world that we are now living in, in the 21st century, at least in the weird world, you know, the Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic countries, is changing so fast that novelty we can deal with Hypernovelty, we're having an increasingly difficult time. And that is the essence, seemingly, of our time. Not only is our world hypernovel, but it's becoming more hypernovel by the day and probably an exponential curve or something damn close to it. Exactly. The the change change is good. The rate of change itself is changing so fast that anyone would have a hard time keeping up. 
And of course, you guys say this spawns a cognitive dissonance in uh, in trying to live in a society, right? We we were not evolved either culturally or genetically to deal with this kind of thing. That's right. That's right. And we are, you know, we also argue that we're not blank slates. There, there are no blank slates on, on Earth that are evolved. But of all the organisms on Earth, we are the blankest slates. We're born with the most capacity, the most lability, that is, you know, flexibility to become almost anything that we want of any organisms. But that doesn't mean that we're capable of, of anything. And yeah, the, the rate of change is is at risk of outstripping our capacities. Yeah, one thing we should make clear in the book is that you're attempting to create a scientific lens for your exploration, which is good. And in fact, I'm going to call out, I thought, a very nice and succinct description of the, you know, the scientific program. Uh, we thus generate models of the world that when we do the scientific work correctly, achieve three things. They predict more than what came before, assume less, and come to fit together with one another in a seamless whole. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit and how how, how you and Brett see the scientific career, the scientific vocation. Yeah. Well, predict more, assume less, and come together in a whole such that ultimately, ultimately, the model of reality, as it comes to fit with what is actual reality, there won't be stories that conflict with one another. You know, the stories that are true will come to be in sync with one another. So you know, we, we walk around our world and we make observations. That is a human, a human function and indeed is the function of, of really any organism that has, has any level of consciousness. You know, we're not alone in that, although we are the most conscious. I would say, I guess, the question that you asked specifically is, you know, what does what does a person making a career in science do versus what is it to walk around with a scientific worldview and a scientific approach to the world? Unfortunately, those are not a perfect match for one another at this point, as, as you and your listeners will be, will be unfortunately well aware of. So too often, modernity forces us in our careers to respond to market forces rather than to our interests about what it is that we see in the world. So when you walk Indeed, this is a, you know a, a little vignette that's not in the book. On that same trip where Brett and I almost got washed away by the Rio Sauda Piqui on the first time that we were doing fieldwork in the tropics, the professor who we were with, John Vandermeer, who's a tropical ecologist, walked us into the rainforest. And Brett and I had already spent a summer exploring, but this was the first time that we were there, sort of as scientists with our scientist hats on. And he sort of opened his arms and beckoned at the entire scene before him and said, just look at all the questions. And my first thought was, oh my God, I don't see any questions. All I see is green. Like, <laughs> I, I do not know what to do with this. And I mean, really, it, you know, any domain, be your domain, you know, cellular biology or out among the stars or anything in between. It's a it's a matter of what are your predilections? You know, what kinds of patterns are you prone to recognize and be interested in? And what kinds of questions can you ask of them? And then then what's required is that you pose as many hypotheses about any observation that you have as possible, that you figure out what predictions inherently follow from those hypotheses, and that you try to understand what it is that you might do to resolve between them. You know, does it require experimentation? Does it require formal observation? Either ones can, can provide 
appropriate tests for some hypotheses. Some will need to be run multiple times, other kinds of hypotheses. Uh, it only requires one, one incident and you know for sure that, that you've got an answer, right? So statistics are the domain of the former, not of the, of the latter. So all of the particulars, you know, the mechanics, the methods, the tools, uh, vary widely between the kinds of scientific questions that you might ask. But it's really one of observing and refining what it is that you see and having it come together into a whole that explains more, assumes less, and comes to fit together with the other things that you know to be true that also explain more and assume less. It's been an incredible enterprise the last 300 years to have developed this new way of seeing. Though it doesn't come without its risks. In fact, you call out in the book, you know, a risk of what might be thought of as a shallow style of science thinking, which is the well-known naturalistic fallacy, where people can overgeneralize, essentially, is the idea that you know what is in nature is what ought to be, or in short, the is ought fallacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I always began when I was a professor. My first day was always philosophy of science with every class. But I'm not. You know, I'm a not philosopher by training. But this, you know, the the fallacies, you know, the is ought fallacy, the naturalistic fallacy. There are a few that are all kind of closely related. But evolutionary biology is particularly prone to having its findings grabbed by people who have either ill intentions or naive intentions. And as a result, I think, you know, so much that happens over in social science that imagines that it is a reaction against evolutionary biology is actually a reaction against the inappropriate grabbing of Darwinian thinking for bad ends, right? You know, eugenics, social Darwinism, social Darwinism is not Darwinism. And so it's, it's that kind of of grabbing of careful thinking for bad ends that gives evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, um, a lot of these kinds of fields, a bad smell for people. But in fact, what, what I argue, what Brett argues, and what we both argue in the book, and we're certainly not alone in this, is in order to live the best lives we can, in order to create the best possible future for, you know, for our descendants and for uh, everyone, in including non-human animals and, and plants and who will live on the planet, we need to understand what we are. Like we need an evolutionary framework. And that, that requires not just knowing, you know, what it means to be a fish and what it means to be a mammal and what it means to be a hunter-gatherer. It means knowing really at a fundamental level what it means to be human and not imagining that evolution stops at the neck or that, you know, or that any of the many cultural changes that we are experiencing aren't as deeply evolutionary as the aortic arch in our heart. Yeah, we'll get into the uh, very interesting relationship between genetic evolution and cultural evolution a little, a little later in this story. That's probably the most interesting part, at least to me. Now, let's go on to the next story that you tell, which was, you alluded to a little bit earlier, the epoch where the people in Beringia, that area between Siberia and Alaska, you know, the ice ages starting to attenuate and either, I know people argue about this, either a uh, clear channel opened up through the inland route through Yukon and I think Alberta probably and down into the warmer climes or they came by sea but one way or the other a group of people set off to the unknown why don't you tell us that story and what does it mean about the bigger picture the relevance to what you're trying to say yeah 
for a long time, we were calling this the greatest story never told. And of course, that that suggests that it's not being told. And there, there are many amazing anthropologists working on trying to figure out what the peopling of the Americas looked like. And there is, as you point out, still some disagreement. But the version of the story that we tell in the book, the details of which uh, may change in our understanding, but involves something between 10 to 25,000 years ago. And you know that's a, that's a broad range. So I'm just um, I'm being conservative in my in the precision of the estimates just to keep within the range that pretty much everyone agrees with at this point. There was land between Siberia and and Alaska, and people began to head east out of Asia onto that land, and probably probably they lived there in Beringia, in that strait that is now underwater for some amount of time. And it was cold, but it wasn't as cold as you might imagine given current climate. And it was productive, although not as productive as, say, you know, a grassland in modern temperate North America. But it had enough, enough on it that people made a living there. And then at some point, people began to head east. You know, obviously people cannot live there now. It's underwater. So people were forced by changing climate, by the, again, the cooling of the climate by rising sea levels to either head back west from whence their ancestors had come. And the descendants of those ancestors from whence they came presumably would have had some feelings about this these new people coming back into their landscape. And so some people probably did that. They were probably the descendants of some Beringians in, in Asia today. But some of them headed east. And most of them probably didn't make it because that is the nature of exploration. That is the nature of uh, heading into unknown landscapes with risks that you cannot foresee and to which you are not yet adapted. But it seems, you know, the story that we tell in the book is that it seems like the coastal route is mo most likely as opposed to an, an inland route, but it's, it's possible that people went inland. And as these people emerged south of the ice for the first time. So south of, uh, on the West Coast, modern day Olympia, actually, where, where Brett and I lived for many years, they would have come across a landscape that they had no way of knowing, but was two continents big, filled with plants and animals that had no history with humans, that had more kinds of habitats than any of the Beringians had even imagined. And they began to fill it. And, you know, they, they, they went down the coast and they went inland and they went, uh, you know, they got as far as the Caribbean and they got as far as Tierra del Fuego and they inhabited all the islands and all of the places. And this became, those first Beringians became thousands of cultures with thousands of language. They invented and, you know, not, not alone in the world, not alone in humanity, but convergently, independently invented agriculture and astronomy and the concept of zero and and wheels and uh, and so much else and you know city states there was such extraordinary diversity um, and writing uh, and you know not most most of the people who were the descendants of the of those Beringians weren't parts of cultures that had most of those things in fact it was the Mayans who had most of those but it was hardly a case that you know what we most of us learned in elementary school that it was like the Mayans the Aztecs and the Inca who were the most important and only representatives of those first peoples by far no you know, there were, there were, there were Taino in the Caribbean and, and just so many people throughout the New World who made life work 
based on the environments that they found there. And they created tools and they created relationships and they had different social structures. And the relevance to the book is look, you know, look at what humans can do. Look, look at in a pre-industrial and at the point that they arrived, pre-agricultural landscape, look at how much humans can accomplish. And they did it pretty fast, right? If you take at least the main line center of the anthropological and archaeological roadmap, say, assuming they got to Olympia or thereabouts and 15,000 years ago, within 2,000 years, they're in Tierra del Fuego, right? That's amazing. It's extraordinary. It's, it's, I mean, it's really hard to imagine if, you know, if you have any familiarity at all on the ground with ever backpacking or with any of the landscapes between, you know, the Pacific Northwest and Tierra del Fuego, imagine walking your entire population without knowing where you were going, without having any goal in mind, all the way at, you know, at the north-south axis from one end to the other of the new world in 2000 years and leaving intact cultures behind as you went. Totally extraordinary. Yeah, very interesting. But now we have a new set of challenges. Uh, you say, we have hunted and gathered, cultivated and machined our way around the globe, transforming the earth in our wake, bending landscapes to our will and pushing many to the brink of collapse. So the relationship between humans and nature, perhaps yeah. the biggest story in the book. Uh, it is, I don't know if I would have said it's the biggest, but it's certainly, I mean, maybe, maybe it is, maybe, maybe you have identified it, that one of the mistakes of some moderns, not all, is to imagine that everything that isn't human is here for us to control and master. And that, that misses the mark on a few levels. One of the levels that it misses the mark on is it misunderstands the complexity of both humans and the landscapes that we live in. And so one of the themes throughout the book is basically a, a drumbeat against reductionism, right? A, a drumbeat against sort of pseudo quantification and using metrics to imagine that you understand a system that you actually have no way of understanding. So it is, it is a truism, uh, and I believe it is still true in, for instance, forestry management, that uh, when you take down a forest, if you're using the trees for lumber, if the people who took down the forest re replant in rows for future logging purposes and, you know, be that 20, 30, 40 years in the future, that new thing, that new planted thing in rows is also called a forest. And of course it's not, right? You cannot, we do not have the knowledge of all of the complexity of what forests actually are to create a forest with our will. We cannot, we cannot bend nature to our will that way. Obviously, we have bent nature to our will in many, many regards, but the unforeseen consequences and the downstream effects are many. We know some of them at this point, but we have to be assured that we don't know most of them. Yeah, and we've done, and you know, I always, I've said this many times on the show, but I'd like to repeat it just to show how dominant we've become. Humans and our domestic animals are now clearly the majority of the biomass of large mammals, i.e. bigger than rodents, on Earth, which is pretty staggering. The one that actually shocks me more is that our poultry is 85% of the biomass of all birds on Earth. I had, well, I had not heard that, and yet actually... It doesn't surprise me. You know, there are what, uh, what's the current estimate? 15, something 15 to 20,000 species of birds, I think, extant. And fact is, poultry are pretty big bodied. 
Um, so you got to, each of them is probably the size of, I don't know, 10 or 15 songbirds right away, but. A lot more than that, probably. Think about, you know, a little yeah. wren or something weighs a couple <laughs> ounces and a big old fat chicken weighs like four pounds, right? Yeah, so you're talking, yeah, yeah. you're talking orders of magnitude here. Yeah, I guess depend, depending on the chicken, depending on the songbird, yeah. Order, at least orders, maybe, maybe even orders of magnitude. But, and, you know, we, we, we've won with our poultry and they have too. I guess that's one of the messages of the book as well, right? It's one of the sort of uncomfortable messages is those things that we have domesticated into what appears to be submission are actually, you know, winning an evolutionary game. And the wrens, for instance, aren't winning in the same way, except those who live in places that we have decided not to, not to ransack. Yep, and that's a, a really tough and interesting question. It's one, of course, that I fall on the side that because nature is complex and beautiful and reaffirming for us humans, we often forget we have to preserve it. We have to bring it back. We have to restore it, regenerative ecology, not just save what little bit we can save, but actually bring it back. I love the idea that over some period of time, maybe a couple hundred years, where it would be great if we could dedicate half the earth to true wildness, right? Absolutely. And it require a lot of discipline, a lot of thought, but I think it can be done. It's important. Actually, let me let me just pick up on that for a second. We don't talk, we don't go into agriculture very much in the book, except to point out how transformative a moment it was for humans everywhere that it showed up, especially, you know, in things, I mean, with regard to everything, with regard to economics and gender roles and all of this. But one of the true things about agriculture is that Swidden agriculture, which is usually called slash and burn, which is has been the most common or was the most common among among pre-industrial peoples in the tropics, has this terrible reputation among most sort of developed world, among most weird people. It's imagine, you know, you slash the forest and you burn it and it's so destructive. And the fact is at low population density, it's really effective. And it's effective in part. So, I mean, this is, this is sort of far afield from, I imagine, anywhere you plan to go, but, you know, tropical soils are very poor. Tropical ecosystems have their nutrients in the biomass rather than the soil. And so what slash and burn does is you cut down, you cut down a forest and you basically burn the veg into the soil and dig it into the soil so that the nutrients that were above ground are now in the soil and you can, and you can plant crops. And that works, but of course, at some point after, depending on the crop and depending on the soil, two, three, four, five years, that soil is again impoverished with regard to nutrients. And so you move on and you take another plot nearby and you slash and burn that. And you don't come back to that original plot for 10, 15, 20 years. Again, it depends on the soil and the place and the crop. But 10 or 15, 20 years in a tropical habitat that has borders on at least two sides with intact habitat is enough for it to begin to regenerate. It's actually enough. And so, you know, what, what we need is borders of our non-intact habitats that can effectively seed uh, those places that we would like to regenerate. And it could be done. And that, you know, that does presume things like no toxins, uh, like the herbicides and the pesticides that are keeping the, the growth out, uh, which is which is a harder to control problem. But fact is slash and burn works, which means that nature nature will regenerate given a chance. Of course, that gets us to the one of the, uh, the real dilemmas of our epoch. Yeah, Swidden can work. Non-hybrid seeds can work. No fertilizer can work, but not for 8 billion people. Probably. That's right. At least yeah. not with our current level of technology. So we are in this really difficult moral dilemma of you know, desire to regenerate ecology and a rich, true ecosystem, which as you say, we can't 
engineer a complex ecosystem. We can nurture it and guide it a little bit, but can we do it in a way that will support 8 billion people, 10 billion probably before we reach peak humanity here towards the end of the century and bring everybody across to the other side? It's going to be a difficult problem. It's going to be difficult. And no, we can't do it with Sweden. Like that won't, that won't be the tool. Yeah. Now, just to take the contrarian perspective here, and again, make it clear, not one I believe in. I know some folks who you would call techno-utopians that think we can dispense with nature entirely, pave over the whole world. I read an essay not too long ago by somebody saying that you know, humanity should aim for a trillion people. Oh my God. And, and they was able to calculate that you know the limiting factor is probably phosphorus, but there's enough phosphorus on Earth that's accessible to support easily a trillion people. And we could feed ourselves from fungi tanks powered by nuclear fusion and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, it could happen. Oh, boy. But it feels wrong. Why is this wrong? Why is this the wrong road for humanity? I got to say, that's one of the most horrifying things I've heard. It's, it's, it's really appalling. I guess I would ask, what life would that be for those trillion people? And I can't think of anyone who I know who would want to live that life. So that's one thing. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, once again, it's a highly reductionist. It takes the things that we can count that we've already figured out are true and necessary, things like phosphorus. And, you know, presumably this article um, assesses things like nitrogen and magnesium. And so it goes through the elements, goes through the things that we can count and that we know are necessary for life. And it imagines that those, because they are necessary, are also sufficient. And they're not right? That's not, it's not sufficient for life. And so just as, and this is a point we make in the, in the book about other things, you know, just, you know, food is sustenance, right? Food for a, for a monarch butterfly is a, a monarch butterfly on a milkweed plant is just getting sustenance. That monarch butterfly is not also trading stories with other monarch butterflies about what it's like to be a monarch. So food is only, only sustenance for that monarch. When that monarch has sex with another monarch, it's only creating other monarchs. It's not also, it's also not bonding with that monarch and creating bonds that will allow it to be a good parent later on and go forward in the world and be the most productive and have the best chance of sharing its ideas and such, right? It's just sex. So food is sustenance, true. Sex is reproduction, true. But there are many of us, not just humans, for whom food is more than just sustenance. Sex is more than just reproduction and life is more than just phosphorus, right? Like the idea of tri a trillion people on this planet eating, you know, vats of, from vats of fungi and, you know, supplemented sufficiently with phosphorus so that we don't keel over. What kind of horrifying life is that? You know, what, what, what about art and grief and beauty and, and, and play and sex and love and sport and, and relationship and childhood and all of the amazing things that we can do on this planet. It's not just about the things that are easily counted and, you know, fed into fungal vats. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. There are people who think that way. And of course, a lot of people think in a more narrow version, which is that all we have to do is throw the accelerator forward and our uh, technological invention will get us through the rest of this century. And then we'll figure the rest out later. Right. The neocornucopians. Yeah, yeah. That was a good coinage, if you guys coined that. I don't think I'd ever heard that term before. I just call them techno-utopians. Yeah, no, but cornucopians is not our term. Uh, I can't remember at the moment, someone from the 70s or 80s was identified as a cornucopian, and I'll remember it after we're off air. But 
Yeah, there, I mean, there there has been this tension for a while between people who imagine that all we need is our ingenuity from which we'll follow our technology and we will be able to solve all of our problems. And, uh, you know, A, I think that is is wrong just on its face, but it also is too simplistic and narrow in its imagining of what actually our problems are and what all humans can be. And we'll get a little bit later. I would argue it's also deeply in conflict with fundamentals of human nature. That's right. Absolutely. And, and that's something that I really appreciate that you and Brett uh, were not afraid to say. There is something called human nature. God damn it. Right? Yeah. No, that's that's right. And again, you know, we say we're not blank slates. We are actually the blankest slates of anyone, of, of any of the species on earth. And so, you know, you can see that, for instance, in, in language. All humans are born with a capacity for language, absent the very rare, um, very severe defects, right? All humans are born with a capacity for language. But babies, any baby, no matter what family they are born into, if they are at all developmentally normal, you take them to any other place and raise them among any other people who speak any other language that has no relationship to the language that they were born to. If you do that early enough, they'll speak that language. Whereas, yeah, it's really you know, amazing. That, it's it's uh, extraordinary. And like, I, you know, I can't speak a tonal language at this point. I don't think I could learn. I don't, you know, I no longer have the linguistic capacity. Those things, those things fade during some critical developmental period. But every human has the capacity for language. That's not blank slate. But the fact that every baby has the capacity for any language, that points to a blanker slate than many of us would usually imagine. Indeed. Well, let's get back to the book now and talk about campfires. It's a metaphor you use. I've, uh, you know, chats I've had with Brett over the years, he, he, he's used it before and I think still uses it. And you use it both literally and metaphorically. And it's, it's really interesting. And I, you know, my wife and I live on a mountain farm and we regularly have campfires when we have company over, whether it's to stay with us or just for dinner. One of our favorite things to do is go outside and pile up a big pile of wood and light torch it up and uh, sit around and talk and pass the bottle and what have you. And it really is a very congenial way to interact. So talk about the idea of the campfire, both literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, I want to ask you first. Um, so you said there's fire, there's conversation, there's a, a, a mood enhancer in the form of what's in the bottle. Is there is there music? Do you ever have music? Not too often. Not too no, often. it's interesting. Uh, think about it. Very, very rarely somebody will have a who have showed up has a guitar and a go out and plunk. Though I think we're going to have such later this month, some uh, folks coming over and he just cannot resist playing and singing. So we'll probably have a little singing around the campfire. But I do remember the in the Boy Scouts, that's where I really got into the campfire habit. We had a whole bunch of goofy ass songs that we sang and we always did. And I will tell you, we actually always ended with Kumbaya, believe it or not. <laughs> there it is. So, I mean, I think the two necessary ingredients are the fire and the conversation. I think the, you know, what's in the bottle or, or what's lit and being smoked or, you know, what, you know, that is, that is often an additional feature, but, um, not necessary, but often. And I would say that the fourth thing that is often a feature of a campfire that is memorable and, and successful and hopefully common enough that, you know, the campfires begin to, to blend together a little bit. Although I haven't been around a campfire in, in a few years at this point is music. So, so, you know, why, what, what is it? Well, well, I guess I, I will say first that uh, when Brett and I were professors at Evergreen, we did domestic field trips every quarter. 
And we also, I did several study abroad trips and he and I did my, the final study abroad trip together, 11 weeks in Ecuador. And abroad, you didn't tend to do campfires so much because Panama and Ecuador are not uh, not the same kinds of spaces. But when we would take students to eastern Washington, the Scablands, or to the San Juan Islands, or to the Oregon coast, there would be campfires. And so that was education. And you know, we were we were teaching explicitly evolutionary biology and animal behavior and statistics and philosophy of science and zoology and you know, all of these things. And we were also teaching, at some level, community and how to be human. And so on these trips in general, you know, with a lot of, a lot of organization in advance, I would, I would get students into food groups and they would have sufficient money to be, you know, entirely creating meals um, for all of us. And so we would do that. We would, we'd make bread together and break bread together three times a day. And those were important features. But the campfires that generally happened at least once, often more than once, after meals, after all of the formal programming for the day was over, when there's no more expectations, if you want to go to bed, you go to bed. If you want to go off on your own, you go off on your own. And if you want to join us around a campfire and just sit and talk and uh, the barriers are down and, you know, being being school trips, we didn't have the bottle that we were passing around. Um, although I was around at one campfire in uh, in Sonora at a field station with some students and with another professor once um, at this just amazing field site called Navapatia where where we were and there was music and there was conversation and there was some um, local mezcal-like like drink and there was a fire. And those conversations, be they, you know, with or without the drink, with or without the music, it's the conversations where there's enough light to kind of see each other, but not so much light that you are feeling exposed. You can at any moment slip away and it's not a big deal. You don't have to excuse yourself. You can if you want, but you can go either to, you know, to use the bathroom or just to think or to go to bed and you can come back. You can come back into the fold and not announce yourself. You can be part of this human community where ideas are shared and it's low stakes. You can posit things that maybe you wouldn't feel like doing under the full light of day. You know, there's, there's no excuse for disrespect or for, you know, for, for terribleness, but it just, it lowers the inhibitions a little bit. And it means that there are things that can be considered that might not be considered in a more formal setting. You know, you definitely, you definitely end up saying things and thinking things around a campfire that you wouldn't at a conference. And the inverse is true too, right? The, the formality of a conference, for instance, or a classroom allows for some things that happen that probably wouldn't around a campfire. And I would say that the tension between those two, that being able to oscillate back and forth between them is, is the sweet spot. So, you know, literal campfires are extraordinary. Metaphorical campfires, to which, you know, many of us have been constrained, especially over the last year and a half or so of COVID and, and, and travel restrictions and, and such, are also important. And I think that they are both a shadow of a real campfire, but also have the capacity to basically remind us as humans that whenever we are in community to, with one another, whatever that means, and you know, without any of the you know, woo-woo stuff that you might associate with it, we are interacting as humans, as fully embodied humans who have all of the cares that the other humans in the room, including yourself, do, all of the potential for strengths and weaknesses, uh, for, for hurting others and for being hurt. And like, here we go. 
let's let's talk. Let's talk about things without any restraints on what it is that we're going to talk about and see where it goes. That that I would say, I guess, is the is what Campfire offers, both literal and metaphorical. Yeah, it's great. And it may have been our original form of collective sense making and decision taking. You know, back to your Beringia story. Absolutely. You know, which way do we go? Left or right? North, south, east, west? Uh, somehow a group of people have to come into alignment and coherence on something like that. And considering the time and the technology, I kind of doubt they worked it out on Zoom. That's right. Or, you know, or in a PowerPoint, you know, or in a bulleted list, right? It was, it was exchanging of ideas and having, you know, someone with some insight say, oh, but, you know, what, what about, and I, you know, I, th- I think this remains in the book. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much that we had to take out because, you know, of course, but, you know, someone says, oh, we're in a new landscape. How can we, how are we going to find fish? You know, that fish is what we used to be eating. And someone else who happens to be the kind of loner who was hanging out by the river says, oh, you know, I saw fish over here. And someone else says, well, maybe we're going to need rope. And I was playing with these plants over here. And this plant seems to be good for making cordage. I'm going to see what I can weave together. And someone else starts, you know, stripping bark off trees and seeing what they can make with the bark. And so, you know, all of, all of these different kinds of expertise, I think, are better found in a campfire type situation as opposed to a conference or a, or a classroom where you're basically being told this is the kind of thinking and expertise that we are privileging right now, right? And that's not to say that we need the kinds of expertise that emerges from many labs and conferences and um, and classrooms, but those are not necessarily the only kinds of expertise that we need. Interesting. And, uh, you know, we had uh, Robin Dunbar was our last guest on the podcast, and we had a really good conversation with him about scaling laws with respect to social groups. He'd say that in the hunter-gatherer forger epoch, the uh, camp size, which, you know, camp size equals campfire, was probably 50 or less folks typically, and maybe 20 of those adults. So that might give us some thought on what what's the optimal size for something like campfires, whether, you know, real or metaphorical. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I mean, if I ask you to imagine the campfires that you have on your farm, like how big do they get? Probably, well, you tell me. Less than 10. Yeah, less than, I was, I was going to guess that. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the campfire I mentioned in Sonora and that had about 10. And, you know, sometimes domestic campfires with classes, you know, where we might have 50 students on the trip, it was rare that more than 20 or so would show up around the campfire and you know bigger than that and there's people at the edges and they're kind of in they're kind of out but it, you know you can't for one thing you know a campfire obviously in most situations is also originally a source of warmth right like that's you know the fire is is originally um sort of predator you know keeping predators away and and keeping you warm and and you know and of course cooking food and forging metal and all of these things and so this you know this metaphorical value of bringing people together is is so important, but you know, more than twenty people around a campfire—it's not going to keep those people warm unless that's really more of a bonfire than a campfire. Yeah, exactly. And the Boy Scouts, we'd get them up to thirty, but we were pretty small in those days, so we could pack <laughs> pack each other in. But yeah, something in that size is the outer outer limit of what's practical around a campfire. It probably should tell us something about how we organize our work, right, and how we organize our collective sense making. Indeed. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Well, next thing you talk about in the book is that's a human superpower, though not entirely absent from some of our animal relatives, is theory of mind. 
talk a little bit about theory of mind and how important that's been to making us who we are. Yeah. Theory of mind is the idea that you as an individual can understand the mental state of someone else, even when that mental state differs from your own. And so we can see theory of mind developing in young children uh, when they can infer by watching uh, what other people see, that even if they know, for instance, you know, what cup a piece of candy is under, that their mother perhaps cannot if their mother was out of the room when it changed. And some other organisms do have theory of mind. One of my favorite books, and in fact, which is, um, again, mentioned in ours, is Cheney and Seyfarth's Baboon Metaphysics. So they follow uh, baboons of the Okavango River Delta uh, for many years. This is a husband and wife team of anthropologists who are studying baboons and, in fact, their, th their theory of mind and baboons' ability to actually infer the cognitive states of others, again, even when it differs from their own. So theory of mind is absolutely fundamental to so much of what humans do. If I imagine that the only way of understanding the world is what I understand of the world, I'm going to have not just a narrower ability to move, to move among other people, but I'm going to end up making very big mistakes. And I think, I mean, actually, one of the ways that we are deranged in modernity via social media and things like it is that it flattens us. It flattens us into just the text that we write down often, or you know, depending on what the medium is of the particular social media. And it allows people to either imagine or legitimately forget that there's an actually fully embodied other human being on the other side of some interaction. And, you know, the yelling and the insults and, and the hate that, that is often, is often on social media, I think is very often about a failure of theory of mind, a failure of the person writing such things to remember that actually that's a human being, a whole human being, and that they may legitimately know different things about the universe than you do. And of course, that's very interesting, right? We did not evolve with Facebook or Twitter. And, <laughs> no, we didn't. and so we aren't getting the, uh, you know, high dimensional cues that that's another person, you know, the look in their eye, the smell, right, their facial expression, etc. And so it becomes possible, at least, to essentially behave like a sociopath. Exactly. And say, oh, those people at the other end of Twitter, they're not real people, they're just characters on a screen. And not at all clear to me that that is a good way for us to be interacting. No, and it's, you know, it's like it's the world has gone anime. And, you know, it's, it's, another, it's another thing that we say in the book, you know, one of our hypotheses is that early childhood exposure to screens, if those screens have on them uh, human or humanoid, you know, human-like things that appear to be capable of interacting with you, but of course they don't. And so they are just doing their thing, whatever it is. And the young child on the other end of that, experiencing a lot of human or human-like interactions on screens early on, may well learn to associate interactions as being unidimensional, you know, of being of being one way, such that, oh, it's my turn to talk, now I talk, but I have no expectation that you're actually going to engage me. And when you're talking, I know that you can't see me or hear me or respond to me or engage with me as a human being. And it's, you know, that the sort of the flat affect uh, that can result from that, we posit, may be responsible for, for instance, an uptick in autism diagnoses. Yeah, that uh, could make sense. I mean, TV was actually the first of that, right? Where yep. we got uh, absolutely sufficiently high fidelity. In fact, I often like to call out it was that the turning point may have been color TV. You know, black and white TV was so obviously artificial 
but something about color TV, you know, it's, you know, we didn't have color TV until the eighties, but then a lot of people got it in the seventies and it seems like shit fell apart starting in the seventies. <laughs> God damn it. I know I sound like an old codger and I am deservedly. So I can sound like an old codger if I want to, but I wonder if color TV or that, you know, more, more hyper-realistic thing of one way interaction from them to us may not have been part of this, uh, this, this transition that we're now reached kind of the apiosis, though maybe not yet. I'm going to lay out something that I know that's in the works because I'm involved with some people doing it. And that is toys designed for children with high-powered AI in them that can actually interact with the child in a uh, at least child level of conversation. I'm not sure what I make of that, but I'm not at all sure that it's a good idea. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not either. But um, I do think you're right about it's an interesting distinction between color TV and black and white TV. Everyone can see black and white TV and recognize that that's not actually the, re- the real world. It is a representation. It's harder to know that as a child if what's on your screen looks very much like uh, what's out there in the world. And I hate to admit it, yesterday I clicked the yes to pay an extra $3 a month to Netflix to switch our account to ultra high definition. <laughs> and, you know, on the big 65 inch ultra high definition TV, that stuff looks mighty good. We watched our first uh, show on it last night and they go, holy moly, this may not be a wise thing to expose children to. Right. Well, and I was just going to say, like, I th- you know, I think you and I and your audience presumably is old enough to deal with it. And that's not to say that there might not be downstream effects, but, you know, the risks are greater the younger the the recipient of such things are. You know, people are actually building their models. Like, as I mentioned pre-show, we have, we have a granddaughter, a year old now, and it's very interesting. Our daughter is extremely aware of the danger of screens, and her and her husband will be excellent custodians of screenage. Uh, but... This very precocious little girl is so drawn to the screen just the few times she's even seen them, right? You know, a TV show happens to be on when we walk into the room with her, we'll turn it off, but her eye is drawn to it. There's something about these things that are, of course, they're designed to hold our attention, to sell us shit we don't need, Exactly. but they, they work even on, on infants. It's mental candy. It really right? is. It's mental candy. It's, it's junk entertainment, just like we've got junk food, we've got junk sex, we've got junk everything. And yeah, keep keep the junk away from the children as long as possible. And if we can, keep it away from all of us as long as possible. I'm, uh, as uh, my listeners know, I'm in the middle of a six-month social media sabbatical, which I do every year. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, from July through December. I do not do social media or even closely similar things to social media. And I find it to be uh, remarkably mentally refreshing and uh, also frees up a fair amount of time, but more importantly, emotional energy so I don't spend bashing people over the head. <laughs> I can use unconstructive projects and I recommend it as a practice for everybody. That's fabulous. So if I may, what what counts as closely related to social media? What else What else do you not do? Uh, I'm a member of an ancient online community called The Well. And it's actually more like a super forum. So it doesn't have the complicated, unstructured, many-to-many network. Everything is in its, its place. So there's conferences which have topics which have comments, right? So it's kind of like a precursor to what social media was, but the, the well's been around since 1985 and hasn't changed a lick since then. So when I talk about things like the well, I, I think it's a little uh, inaccurate to call them social media. So I think of them as a an adjacent to and precursor of something like social media. Very good. Wow, six months a year, that seems uh, extraordinary and so valuable. 
Oh, I highly recommend it. And I, even when I'm on social media, my wife and I both try hard, and I will say we occasionally fall off the water wagon, to not engage interactive devices at all on Sundays. Mm-hmm. So that's our one-day Cyber Sabbath, we call yep. it. And yeah. Again, not as good as the six-month break, but unplugging yourself is, is important. Anyway, we got so much to cover in so little time. I'm going to hop over a couple of interesting topics to another place which strikes me is of the uh, the essence of of the work which is the relationship between culture and biological evolution and it's really really interesting the work you guys have done in that i'm going to read a little this this is kind of your theory of culture in some sense uh, if the result works well when tested in the world it gets refined and then driven into a more automatic less deliberative layer this is culture The application of culture to the circumstances for which it is adapted is the population level equivalent of an individual being in the zone. That is really interesting. And I must say an idea that is entirely new to me. Maybe if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we talk about the tension between culture and consciousness and Exactly as you said, you, you, know, you read basically our definition of culture and our definition of consciousness being specifically those ideas which are packaged for exchange, but it is almost the opposite of, of culture. So we innovate in our conscious minds. We, um, we struggle in our conscious minds. We work to uh, figure out what to do next in our conscious minds. And at the point that we have it down, we, we, you know, we know what we're doing. We don't have to think it through anymore. It's set and forget. You're in the zone. That has moved into the cultural layer. And so, you know, we talk, for instance, about analogies between culture and consciousness. Culture is to consciousness as the shamanistic, or rather the sacred, is to the shamanistic. So at the, you know, in, at the population level, what is cultural is accepted, is the orthodoxy, just as the sacred is within a religion, uh, what is accepted and what is the orthodoxy, whereas what is conscious is, um, has a high error rate, it's messy, it's about innovation. It's often going to, you know, as I said, high error rate, it's often going to be wrong. And so that's more like what, you know, what a shamanistic approach is, is going to have. So I think, I think I veered from exactly what your question was, which was over in cultural space. So maybe, maybe prompt me if I didn't get there. Well, that's good. I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, though I must say, I find that definition of consciousness a little bizarre, but we'll, we'll have that conversation a different day because it's, you know, the idea of package for exchange is, one of the ways we use consciousness, but since my day job is the scientific study of consciousness, I would define consciousness very differently, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, what you defined is actually interesting and important and, and closely related to culture. It's how creatures, mostly humans in that particular case, communicate to jointly solve problems, something more like collective sense making than about consciousness per se. But that's all right. You know, one of the results of this view of consciousness is, you know, think of it as uh, the compiled version of a program, essentially, you know, the, as you say, being in the zone where you don't have to think about it. That means that culture must be backward looking to what we faced in the past and have found tolerable solutions for. At least so far, culture generally isn't very forward looking. And in our hyper novel world, isn't that a huge problem? Yeah, it sure is. And, you know, there's a reason that children, as they go through adolescence and grow up, end up adopting some of what their parents did and reject 
some of what their parents did, right? So this is this is not just about being difficult as, as teenagers. It actually is adaptive, and it's about recognizing that the environment is changing. And of course, you know, getting back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, in this hypernovel world where the rate of change itself is changing so rapidly, uh, we should expect, unfortunately, uh, that there will be ever less from the past that the young will find of value as they move forward into the future. So culture has value because it provides stability, it provides a through line from the past to the future. And those elements of culture that worked before and should work in the future because the environment hasn't changed should be kept. And those elements of culture that worked before, but they worked in some domain of the modern world um, that has changed now, should probably be thrown out. Now, the trick is in figuring out which is which. And there will be many, many errors made in deciding <laughs> which should be kept and which should be thrown out. And uh, you guys uh, promoted one of the mechanisms which we clearly use in our society, which is it's good in certain ways, but it's probably catastrophic when it's used at the level that uh, we use it today, which you called the sucker's fallacy, the tendency of concentrated short-term benefit, not only to obscure risk and long-term costs, but also to drive acceptance, even when the net analysis is negative. Uh, you know, I talk about this all the time, uh, that we are caught in the local hill climbing. And right. you know, I often point out that in our advanced modern so-called civilization, you know, the relentless pursuit of short-term money-on-money return seems to be the engine that just drives everything. But uh, more generally, hill climb, short-term hill climbing is what dominates, frankly, the evolution of culture. And always has, probably. Yeah. And then, you know, when, again, when the rate of change is relatively slow, it's okay, right? Because the short-term hill climbing that gets you onto a peak that will still be a peak a, a generation from now can be effective. But yeah, that the the languaging, you know, the the name Sucker's Folly is is new in the book, but that thought, that thinking comes directly out of the work that that Brett was doing with you in Game B, you know, many years ago. And, you know, thinking specifically about this tension between short and long-term interests and how difficult it is for us to override our short-term interests, both at the individual and the societal level, in favor of what we all need to be doing, which is looking long-term. And it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Frankly, our you know biggest evolutionary constraint was not starving to death in a month or getting eaten by a tiger tomorrow, right? So the idea that we would have brains evolved to deal with equanimity uh, to something like climate change, which will, you know, bite us in the ass in, uh, in a little bit every day, but not to a major, major, major way for about 30 years. It's just not something that's in our evolved playbook, unfortunately. So we have to build new mechanisms to, to cope with it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say, you know, being human includes all, you know, all of what we've been talking about. It includes the grief and the love and the relationship and, uh, and art and play and sport and science and all of this. But until very recently, most people lived in landscapes that weren't full. And so we were still dealing with non-zero-sum dynamics with regard to resource acquisition and making babies. And, you know, you could basically do what you needed to do or what you felt like doing. And the short-term and the long-term goals, while not exactly coincident, weren't so far off. And that, you know, that becomes so far off at the point that you've basically got a full planet. Yeah, I like to point out to people that, at least in my analysis, I point to 1700 as an inflection point. You know what the population of, the, of Earth was in 1700? Oh, boy, if I, if I try to come up with a number, I'm going to be way off. Uh, 1700. Mm, is it 100 million? 
610 million plus okay. or minus. Okay. But you know, still, you know, less than a tenth of what we have today. Yeah. And keep in mind, most of those poor people were literally dirt poor. The vast preponderance of them were working the land without metal, typically, uh, or very, very, very rudimentary metal, uh, wood, typically, or bone or stone, maybe. Lived in a dirt floored house with no windows. Very high population density. Infant mortality rate was fifty percent, uh, or not infant, but till age five, fifty percent. We had no idea about medicine or biology. Medicine was probably a net killer of people. You know, seventeen hundred. We were still extraordinarily primitive, and our ability to do harm to the planet was relatively limited, right? right. We did not have bulldozers, right? We did not have Roundup. We did not have, you know, strip mining equipment or oil drilling, any of that sort of stuff. And in just this remarkably short period of time, we've gone into this exponential growth in people and at least as importantly in resource consumption that goes along with it. The energy consumption yeah. curve alone is, is spectacular, particularly after about 1800. I like to point to both of those, you know, and all those as just discontinuous with all history before that, basically. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you so you've mentioned 1700 and 1800 and then around 1900, we get, gosh, I want to say Haber-Bosch process. I think I've got that wrong. But yep. Haber-Bosch which yeah. creates our ammonia uh, which we would never have gotten beyond two billion people with, uh, without Haber Bosch and you know hybrid seeds and things of that sort. That's right. You know, so since about 1960, we've been living absolutely dependent on our technology. Yeah, yeah. So as we said earlier, you can't you can't deal with seven billion people or eight billion people with Sweden agriculture. But Haber Bosch, as as much as it you know the the ability to fix nitrogen and thus improve uh, crop yields dramatically, is responsible for some number of us being on this planet today. But it's also responsible for some number of us being on the planet today. So that's a positive and a negative. Yeah, exactly. It's probably three quarters of us, right? Yeah. Roughly speaking. And as we increase our you know meat consumption and things of that sort, even more. Because when you say meat, well, what does that have to do with uh, fertilizer? Well, guess what? Animals eat feed, right? That's right. And typically for cattle, the worst offender, it's about 10 to 1. You need about 10 pounds of uh, feed to produce one pound of beef. You need three or four, five on pork, depending on the breed. And uh, poultry, a little bit more efficient, two and a half, three, something like that. But it's still very, very inefficient to go from feed to, to animals. And as everybody around the world gets rich in fat and wants to eat more meat, uh, that puts ever more demand on the productive capacity of the land, which uh, we're probably already overshooting in any kind of sustainable way. So what you're saying, Jim, is that you think we should all be eating from fungal vats? No. <laughs> I don't know what. You know, I do think we should uh, think very carefully about our impact upon the earth and that we should live in communities where one of the central things we do in our Game B movement, we talk about proto-Bs, which are small communities of 150 peoples, interestingly enough, around the Dunbar number, right. that as one of the things that's part of our sacred culture is that we do an audit every year of our energy consumption and resource consumption and share it to, with everybody in the community and to the broader community of other proto-Bs so they can hold each other accountable. Yeah. You know, the, the amount of energy we consume in America is probably three to five times more than is sustainable at our current level of even carbon neutral technology. Right. And truthfully, we could live just fine on 20% of our energy if we thought about it intelligently. And we could live fine with, you know, four ounces of meat a day rather than, you know, tearing into a 20 ounce porterhouse, which I'll confess I enjoy doing every once in a while. Sure. But truthfully, it's irresponsible. And if we surfaced 
the fact that each of our behaviors is doing X to the carrying capacity of the earth and the ability of other humans to thrive. And if we can develop an ethos that that has to be the mission of humanity for the rest of this century is to learn how to live with 8 billion people or 10 billion people, God damn it, I wish we didn't have that many, yeah. but we do, in such a way that we can remain within the carrying capacity of the earth through the end of the century, technology continue to uh, advance, which will make that easier and easier. And then we can figure out what humanity needs to do next. But first, we have to stop this insane rush to the cliff, which is not only fast, but getting faster every day. Indeed. So I guess I see, and maybe this isn't the right place for this conversation, but I see a potential tension between accountability and both personal responsibility, you know, the the personal responsibility vortex to which Brett has talked a lot, the idea that, you know, anyone anyone who takes on the accountability that you talk about uh, is at risk of being outcompeted by those who don't. And then also a tension between accountability and privacy. And I think, you know, what the the goals that you described are totally honorable. And yet also part of me heard that and went like, well, you know, what if I don't want to share? You know, <laughs> what if what if that's no one's business? And I guess your point in part is it is inherently all of our business. Some things are all of our business. Yeah, here's an interesting analogy that I got from Daniel Schmachtenberger. Now, this is the extreme case. And so extreme cases don't make good law, as they say in the legal business. He says, Think about what the morality would be on a Mars base, where any mistake puts everybody at risk, right? Any serious mistake. In truth, what any, anything that billions of people do on Earth puts everybody at risk. And maybe ideas about things like privacy have to change. I, mean, I know we love them. And maybe things like democracy have to change, or at least mm-hmm. have to, you know, we have to have voice and we have to have exit so that we don't have tyranny, which we know to be a classic bad attractor of human culture. But on the other hand, if we're going to operate collectively within the constraints of good old ma nature, and she does bat last, we're going to have to rethink a whole lot of our institutional structure. Indeed. Good. And, you know, to Brett's, and Brett has been a huge influence on me in, you know, understanding the game theoretic problem to the one you pointed out that, all right, all these hippies over on the proto bees, they're living on a fifth of the energy consumption that uh, typical Americans do. But in some sense, you know, these people in Silicon Valley, you know, are, are you know, running at 10 times the level of intensity. They're going to, in some sense, outcompete us, maybe. Uh, but our argument is if we focus on human well being, that may not be true. That's right. You know, we've gotten totally aside here from your book, so we have to you know, t- terminate this out a little bit. You right. have to hit one of my hot buttons. <laughs> that uh, you know, the game B idea is that we will outcompete them on human well-being. That the people will be happier, saner. Their kids will have a high, much higher pr- propensity to be actually well-adjusted and healthy folks, and not obsessed with porn and things of that sort. Maybe we'll reproduce a little faster rate because we're not hooked on uh, Adderall and porn, right, and, uh, and <laughs> screens. Right. And we'll get to those, some of those topics in, here in, in, in a few minutes. So anyway, rant off. Let's get back to your, your very interesting book here. Ah, this is something that, again, I got exposed to from Brett years ago, but truthfully didn't understand as well as I probably should have. But the book does a great job. And that's talking about the idea of lineages as a lens to look at evolution. And it's actually so cool because it gets us out of naive Darwinism, which can lead to hill climbing thinking. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about the idea of the lineage view of evolution and compare and contrast it with the survival of the fittest 
short-term now this generation thinking. Yeah. So this is um, this is very much an idea that Brett has been working on for a very long time and that I think he will develop more in, in a future tome. But basically the idea is that like like everything else, uh, evolutionary science has become stuck on the metric, on the metric that is easily measured. And so, for instance, our concepts of fitness and of reproductive success basically stop at either the first generation or, in some cases, the next. And, you know, they count offspring or maybe offspring's offspring or, you know, viability of offspring's offspring as a way of measuring how, how fit you are in your environment. And that's all very well and good, but it inherently assumes that what has happened in the short term is what will happen in the long term. So this really does circle back to exactly what we were we were just talking about uh, with regard to you know things like Sucker's Folly. It imagines that there are no rare events that actually have important evolutionary implications. And so, if your future world looks exactly like your past world, then the short-term measures of reproductive success and fitness are effective and fine as a measure of um, how evolution works. But if individuals make decisions that put them out of harm's way, either because of their wits or because of chance, um, you know, in the first case, therefore it's a selective force, or in the latter case, it would be due to genetic drift, such that some populations survive the volcanic eruption or the, you know, wildfire or the flood and some don't, whoever it was a hundred years before who was leaving more kids is irrelevant because those who leave absolutely, absolutely none when the big bad event comes are obviously an evolutionary dead end. So thinking in terms of lineage allows us to do a longer term analysis than thinking in terms of fitness and reproductive success, which at least is currently instantiated are a very short term metric. Does. Yeah, that very well said. And, that, and again, the book laid it out very clearly, and I now understand it and understand what Brett was getting at Wonderful. all these years ago when I sort of understood it, but now I really do. And it actually ties in very closely with some of my own thinking in this space. Uh, and I somewhat, I don't know, controversially like to say, wisdom in the modern world consists of two things. One is understanding exponentials, and the other is understanding fat tail events. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and you know, if you know those two things, you can navigate to the future pretty well. And uh, when I was going ding, 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 when I was reading this was, ah, you know, lineages is all about understanding fat tail events, at least yeah. implicitly. And for those who don't know about the lingo of fat tail events, it means that in complex and particularly social systems, but in all uh, truly complex systems, Big deviations happen more often than you think, right? Yeah. If you remember back to the financial crisis of 2008, few things pissed me off more than the you know CEOs of big banks saying, we couldn't have planned for this. It was a 16 Sigma event. 16 Sigma, meaning using a Gaussian standard distribution, but social system breakdowns aren't Gaussian distributed, you idiot. <laughs> if you looked at it as a approximately a power law distribution or a fat tail, one should expect something on the order of the 2008 financial crisis about once every 100 years. And well, guess what? It was about 80 years after the Great Depression. It was the second biggest fluctuation since the Great Depression. So it actually fits the curve perfectly. It was totally predictable. But because people tend to think Gaussian and not fat-tailed, they are surprised when it happens. Ah, this is 
This is so important. You know, like, you know, tree height and dug firs is going to be Gaussian-ish. You know, it's finite at, at, at both ends. But imagining that behavior of individuals or markets is Gaussian is an insane misunderstanding. And I, I mean, I used to do this just a tiny bit. I, I taught animal behavior and I taught it from beginning to end, which also meant teaching the statistics necessary to interpret the data that the students had collected. And I was like, you you guys who don't know anything about stats, I need to go right into non-parametrics because none of this, none of this is going to be a normal distribution because we're talking about behavior. And that's not how statistics tends to get taught. And that's not how sort of understanding life tends to get taught. Yep. And you know, the idea of lineages when thinking about evolution allows you to actually think richly about evolution within the context of fat-tailed events, right? If your lens to look at evolution is what percentage of this generation successfully reproduces into the next, or as you say, maybe the next one after that, then you look at it one way. And fat tails probably don't matter much because by their definition, they're still rare, right? That's right? But if you think about fat tails and say, all right, this lineage has to survive, or I would we would like it to survive indefinitely into the future, then if you don't consider the fat tail events, then your chances of surviving are way less. Yeah, that's perfect. And I think we don't we don't even use the language... You, know, you said wisdom is a function of understanding. Wisdom in the modern world is understanding exponentials and fat tail events. So those are your two, right? And I think, yeah. I'm not even sure we use either of those words in the book, but it, you've exactly encapsulated a number of the arguments we're making here. Yeah, you talked quite a bit about the you know, the rapid growth. You, 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 you were trying to write for a general audience. So you, I tend to, my audience is a little nerdier than I think your audience is, but that's all right. You did a very good job of getting these ideas across and they really, really resonated with me, I must say. Let's go down to another, yet another big idea. How many times have I said this is one of the big ideas in the book? People, this book is full of big ideas. So if you want to be challenged, read this book. It's not that long, 300 pages or less, I think. But it's full of stuff. You know, We're not even going to get to all of it. But anyway, one of the big ideas in the book, well, like I said, I said one of the biggest in my notes is the Omega Principle. That's right. Why don't you lay that one out for us in some depth? Yeah. So this, again, this is something that Brett was uh, generating for a very long time. You know, this, this book is full of ideas that we have generated together and some too that, that I was more instrumental than, than him. But um, lineage selection and Omega are definitely some of the ones that he has been most instrumental in developing. And so it's the idea that there is a relationship that is necessary between genes and culture. And so let me say first, you know, the genetic layer is what we all understand it to be. And epigenetics literally just means above the genome. And in the modern era, epigenetics is usually invoked to refer to molecular regulators of the genome, things like methyl DNA methylation and such. But originally, it didn't mean just that. That's a, that's a very restrictive meaning of the term epigenetic. And, uh, you know, we use the term sensu stricto and sensu lato in the book. So the sensu stricto version, the strict version of epigenetic is just that molecular mechanisms of modulating gene expression such that you can get different expressions of genes under different conditions as a result of molecular epigenetic regulators. But the sensu lato, or the broader version of epigenetic, means any of those things that can modulate gene expression or that are above the gene layer. And so culture is very much one of these things. So what is the relationship between genetic and epigenetic, or more, you know, easier to come off the tongue between genes and culture? Well, epigenetic regulators, such as culture, are superior to genes in that they are more flexible and they can adapt more easily. They happen more quickly. You know, we, we have cultural change that can happen within generations and not just between generations at the point that a zygote is formed when uh, sperm and egg meet, right? That said, 
epigenetic regulators like culture evolve to serve the genome. So there's this obligate relationship, just like, and we use omega to invoke pi, you know, the obligate relationship between the diameter and circumference of a circle is invoked by pi, and the obligate relationship between genes and culture is evoked by omega. So genes and culture, culture is just as evolutionary as genes. Culture evolves faster, it's more labile, it's more likely to, to be an error, to happen fast, to blink on and off, but it serves, it inherently serves the genes. And that doesn't mean that humans and other organisms don't do all sorts of things that are an error and that never had any adaptive function, but that anything that has persisted, that has, that has stood the test of time and that is complex and that is variable in extent, this is actually another thing in the book, our, our, our test of adaptation, if it's cultural, that means it is evolutionary and that it is ultimately serving the genetic interests. Ah, and of course, this raises the gigantic question and pushback, but what about all the bad shit that humans have culturally adapted uh, and evolved over time, which probably were adaptive, you know, war being the famous one, slavery being almost as ubiquitous in human history as uh, warfare, the patriarchy, which is essentially ubiquitous since the invention of agriculture, you know, all this stuff that us modern, allegedly uh, elevated people say, we don't want all that stuff. And yet, by the uh, Omega Principle, those were adaptive things. Yeah. Well, had to have been. 10,000 years worth of war, slavery, and patriarchy. War, slavery, and I'm just, I'm going to put rape in there as a stand-in for patriarchy because we can argue about patriarchal systems exist. The patriarchy, I'm less, I'm less confident of. But um, so war, slavery, and rape. Everyone can recognize that these are terrible blights on, on human history, and yet they are uh, ubiquitous throughout human history. Right. And, you know, every culture has rape. Almost every culture has had an experience of war and many cultures have engaged in slavery. So those things certainly have been adaptive. That doesn't mean they're good. That doesn't mean they're honorable. And that doesn't mean that just because they're adaptive, just because they're evolutionary, that we can't act to minimize their presence in humanity going forward as much as possible. So just, you know, again, sort of full circle, we're going to go back to the naturalistic fallacy and say, just because what is doesn't mean what, that that is what ought. And there is tremendous plasticity in human behavior. There is even tremendous plasticity in the human phenotype. So we have, for instance, from the same genetic starting points, different anatomies of our aortic arch on our heart. So if we can have that much phenotypic plasticity from the same genetic starting points of something that is so hardwired as the anatomy of our very heart, of course we can behave differently, even if there are things in our history that seem fairly ubiquitous and that are awful. Like this is, this is actually the hopeful message of the book, right? And the hopeful message of evolutionary biology, which is just because it's evolutionary doesn't mean it's your fate. You can, we, we can change what has been and what has been adaptive and we can be better going forward. Yeah. I mean, if you think of culture as the compilation of the learnings of the past, it kind of feels like we're locked into this bad stuff. But it seems to me the, the, the turn now is for humans to take ownership of their own culture. Right. That's right. Absolutely. And say, all right, there was a lot of stuff that, for whatever reason, war, yeah, was adaptive, especially as 
probably adaptive for a long time. But it, now with nuclear weapons and biological weapons and very, very, very fragile infrastructure, uh, war is a disaster. It's been a disaster at least since 1914. And if we were to fight a general war today, it's hard to say what would happen, but it might well be the end of advanced civilization. We've got to learn to grab control of our culture from this backward looking compiler, essentially, that we've had before and say, no, it's time to stop all that stuff. But that's dangerous, right? Because uh, as you guys do talk about in some of the applied chapters, which we're unfortunately not going to have time to get to, many of the innovations in the cultural space are actually not so good. And so it's a very difficult problem. How do we cast away from a backward-looking, compiler-oriented style of culture to a proactive, forward-looking form of culture that can help us adapt to a hyper-novel regime and navigate these walls, which are becoming closer and closer and to, to faster and faster? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. You know, how do we both recognize what we are fated to? Things like being a sexually reproducing species with two sexes. And also look forward and say, okay, so what, what that we have inherited that seems immutable is actually not immutable. And with a greater understanding of what we actually are and are capable of, we can move forward. And, you know, with the additional, you know, very intense time constraint as, as you just invoked of the population is climbing, the climate is changing. We have societal and political instability at almost every scale. So, you know, we need, we need to fix these things now. And we are, we are going to be best able to do so by recognizing that we can't blueprint the future, um, which is exactly in, in your wheelhouse, of course, and by recognizing that uh, as complete an understanding of what humans are and are capable of as possible will help us understand what we can do as we move forward. Great. Well, we're almost out of time here, so I'm going to skip over a bunch of things, but I'm going to read off the topic so people know what they'll get when they look at the book. Very interesting run through of human evolution done very nicely from pond scum to uh, humans in one chapter. The three-part test of adaptation. Very interesting. One of my favorite topics, uh, trade-offs, right? You guys do a very interesting job of talking about trade-offs, etc. And then it's a whole series of interesting Actually, an argument for conservatism, Chesterton's Fence, which people should read that. And then a whole bunch of interesting applied topics, medicine, food, sleep, sex and gender, parenthood and relationships, childhood, school, becoming an adult. I wish more people would become an adult, goddammit. One of the failings of game A is uh, keeping people in perpetual adolescence. Very well handled there. Culture and consciousness. Again, I'd argue a fair amount about that, but that's all right. Do that on another day. And then let's spend the rest of our time on the last part of the book, which you called The Fourth Frontier. What do we do to go forward in a sensible fashion? And as you say, you don't, you don't have a playbook, but you have an approach. Yeah. I mean, I think we've kind of already been there. And this is, again, an uh, area that you and Brett have gone back and forth on a, a tremendous amount in discussing Game B. So the idea is that there are well-known types of frontiers. There are geographic frontiers, such as the Beringians, you know, came into as they, as they actually discovered the new world or were the first human discoveries of the new world. And there are geographic frontiers and there are technological frontiers in which we have discovered a new way of uh, exploiting resources that weren't exploitable before. So for instance, terracing of hillsides that would otherwise have had runoff of water and nutrients and so were unplantable. 
And then we have transfer of resource frontiers, which are basically just theft, and they're not really a kind of uh, frontier. They're, they're clearly theft. Geographic frontiers that are actual frontiers and technological frontiers are not inherently a form of theft, but transfer of resources are. And, you know, for, for instance, when the second discovery of the new world happened, we effectively had a transfer of resource uh, frontier by the, by the Spaniards of the original peoples. And we are arguing that there has to be a new, a new kind of frontier, a fourth frontier, wherein we can, again, not blueprint, but understand ourselves well enough to move forward with you know, understand not just ourselves well enough, but the game theory of how what we are trying to do can be gamed by those not yet participating, frankly, into the foothill of a slope that will be a, a game B, that will, that will allow us to live beautifully, productively, sustainably, not with a trillion people, <laughs> um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, frankly, not with 10 billion people. But if, if we get there, then maybe those numbers will fall slowly through attrition rather than through war. And in, in a way such that all humans can actually discover what it is that they have to offer the world that is either beautiful or new or healing or elucidating, you know, whatever it is that individual humans have to offer the world, that they can do so, being subject to as little luck as possible. You know, we want to minimize the role of luck in all of our lives as much as possible. Yep. My, uh, one of my favorite business mentors said, you can wish in one hand and shit in the other. And I'll tell you which one will fill up first, right? <laughs> it's kind of a crude way to put it, but I agree with you that we can't just hope for the best, right? We have to think through what the real issues we are and, and, and deal with them appropriately. Well, Heather, I want to thank you for an extraordinarily interesting conversation. As I warned you before the show, uh, once I had gone through and created all my show notes, I realized there was no way we we're going to get through this exceedingly interesting book. There's just so much good stuff in it. So listeners, go out there and get A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century by Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein and get into all the stuff that we didn't get to talk about here. Wonderful. Thank you for having me, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.